0: at 6 o'clock, so I hope you come, bring your Bible, and be back with us for that hour if you would. In Romans chapter 8 this morning, passage of Scripture beginning, reading in verse number 22, preaching through Romans, we've come ahead of these verses. In verse 18, For Paul was saying, I reckon or I count that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. that's somewhat of a contrast to what you may be going through presently. And Paul calls it the sufferings of this present time. But he also says they're not worthy or they're not acceptable to be put in the same scale. You, You couldn't possibly put the sufferings that you'll experience in this life, in this side of the scale, and then put the glory that will be revealed in the believer later. And it have any worthiness to be compared. There just is no way to do that. So he sets that as a point. We're reading in verse twenty two, he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Verse twenty four, for we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And uh, let me confess my sins before I preach. That way I can preach fully. That will make it a lot easier on me. All the music today has been about the Holy Spirit and prayer and so forth. And I'm the odd man out. I told my dear wife that I'd be ready to preach Romans 8, or 20, uh, you know, 26 and 27 today. I didn't get there. All the music did, but I didn't. So next week we're going to be a week off on the music, and I apologize to my wife publicly for arranging all the music to fit that, and I'm a week late. So uh, that's just what it is in the ministry. You're never where you're going to end up when you preach a sermon like I do. So point made is this is going to be different than what all the music you've been hearing. This is going to be a different subject altogether. But hope you listen and bear with me. It's God's Word, and I hope that you'll take it as such. Let me begin to say that the reason it's so very important for people like you and me and everybody else to uh, understand those first few chapters in the book of Genesis is that so much of the rest of the Bible is only understood in its context. The reason it's so important for you to understand those first few chapters in the book of Genesis is that to understand the rest of the Bible, all of that is heard or listened to, received, believed, comprehended in the context of those first few chapters. So if a person doesn't get those first few chapters of Genesis... He's going to be lost for the whole of the rest of the Bible. Because so much of what we read through the New Testament, we just take for granted that we already know that. You know, oh, that because Adam and Eve sinned. Oh, because the fall of man. Oh, because of Genesis 3. But there's so many people who don't understand Genesis chapter 3 and therefore don't understand a lot of what the rest of the Bible is talking about. A good illustration of that is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is anchored in Genesis chapter 3. And if you don't have Genesis chapter 3 and understand what went on there, then you're not going to understand Romans chapter 8 at all. Romans chapter 8 text is an excellent example of that, where you have Adam and Eve, the fall of man, their sin, and so forth. Remember, back to those chapters, a few things. One, remember that we were created in the image of God. And do understand? That does not mean that we look like Him. It means that God made us for Himself to be compatible with Him. The only reason you can have a relationship with God is because you were made in His image. You made compatible with God. There is something about the way He created you in that it gives you the prospects and the possibilities through faith in Christ to have, as it were, a relationship with Him. And the compatibility that He created you with makes that relationship possible even with the Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and your belief and faith in Him. But the created in the image issue is a compatibility issue. It's not a look-alike issue. The second thing you need to understand is, it is that fact that you were created in the image of God that is the greatest fulfillment when it is capitalized upon of everything and anything that you could possibly enter into in your life. And when that's coupled in with a relationship with Jesus Christ, which was, I believe, the intent in the creating in the image in the first place, then man has found his fulfillment. And because man doesn't always do that, then there's always complications. Back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmate for him. What's interesting about that is that God created Adam for himself. He created man in his own image. And what's interesting about that is that for whatever reason, and I don't fully understand as a Bible pastor, I don't comprehend this, but I don't have all the answers. The fact is, I don't understand how Adam could have in any sense of the word an aloneness and having that kind of contact with God. I don't understand that. I never will, and I guess that's not for me to know. But the fact is, God looks at Adam and says, you know, Adam's alone. And it's not good that Adam's alone. Now, that's one of the most unselfish things in all the Bible. God made a man for himself. Adam, you're made for me. I made you for me. And then God looks at him and says, there's still something about him. He's not, he's alone. And God said, I know what I'll do. Adam, I'm going to make you a helpmate. And so the Bible indicates that God did. He created Eve and he brought Eve to Adam and said, now this is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. She's yours. What's interesting about that is that that alone condition is a key condition that follows all through the bible and has an impact on lives in fact the matter it is true that um, that has or it will or it is it has or it will or it is having an impact on your life being alone in fact in the relationship of men and women in this room and i tell our young people. In fact, some of the young people that I have performed ceremonies for in the service this morning I've said this very thing. The degree to which you do not attempt to meet the need of your mate is the degree to which that mate will feel an aloneness in your relationship. Doesn't mean you'll meet it. I don't believe that any man can meet every need of every woman. I don't believe that. I don't believe that any woman can meet all the needs of every man. I believe there's a need for that relationship that God imposes on it and God infuses into it. And only God can do some of those things. And I say to you that in this particular case, when God made Adam for himself, he looked at Adam and unselfishly said, there's something still I want to do for Adam. There's an aloneness about him. And God made Eve and brought her to him and and gave her to him. By the way, uh, the devil used this, that aloneness. And I believe the reason he does is because he's alone. I believe the devil's alone. I was reading just this week in a rabbit trail in my devotions from Isaiah 14. and, And this verse struck me in verse 16 it said they that see thee this is in that passage that describes Satan and his fall and it said they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying is this the man that made the earth to tremble and did shake kingdoms you know when I I read that I I immediately uh, thought of and it sounded like to me one aloneness here he is alone. And they're looking on him. And he said, you mean to tell me this is the creature that, that shook kingdoms? This, this is? And as if he's sitting there all coiled up and maybe in a fetal position. I even thought of it like people looking into a, a cage of a captured lion in a zoo. And people coming by and looking at him and almost taunting him with that. Realizing that once he ran free and wild. And now he is caged and alone. And that's how I saw it from this verse of Scripture. You remember, and don't forget, he was banished from the very presence of God Almighty. And there is a sense, I think, of his aloneness. And my personal sense is that I believe ever since that time that he's intended, out of his hatred for God, to corrupt God's creation, to do everything in his power, everything in his reach to make mankind in some way fail in his fulfillment of being what God ordained and created him to be. And consequently, because of that, I believe that he draws mankind away from God so mankind feels alone. And my personal feeling is, is every time you feel alone, no matter what age group you're in, you can be the oldest of our adults in this building or you can be the youngest. But I believe there is a sense when when the devil really works on your heart and mind to draw you away from your relationship with God, he'll make you feel alone. Because there's no place you can go on this earth where He is not there. And if you know Him as Savior, there ought to be such an affirming presence in reading His Word and prayer that you would sense that He's right there before you. He's right there with you. And there ought not be among God's people a great aloneness. I believe aloneness is of the devil. And I believe the devil does it because he's alone. And that's exactly what he ran into when he ran out of the presence of God by the banishment with which God did it. Satan, in effect, told Eve and trying to get her to sin and take that apple. God was selfish and was restricting her with this one tree issue. I believe that's what he said to her. And the fact of the matter is that I believe by doing that, he drew her away, alone, away from her husband. And as he did, in that sense, I believe that's when she sinned. I probably have never read anything that more strikes me, and I've read it to you before, but it was worthy of reading again. There is a book out called Prime Rib and Apple. The author author in this thing has a great description of Eve's eating of the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. Prime Rib, that's the name that this author gives for Eve, took the hand of omnipotence, of course that's God, that he had fashioned from her little piece of bone and plucked the piece of forbidden fruit. She placed it between the lips omnipotence had framed to praise him with And she absorbed it into her system, the poisons of independence, selfishness, and death. And Jesus prepared to go to Bethlehem. I don't think there's anything in literature I've ever read that's more striking than that little phrase. The moment Eve did what she did, Jesus Christ prepared to go to Bethlehem. Because that was the only options left. God had to rework a plan, and not that he didn't expect it in the first place. He knew what man was doing and do, and he knew exactly what had to be done. What's interesting here, when Adam and Eve sinned, they felt alone. Remember, they went and hid themselves. Chapter 3 tells us in verse 8, behind the trees. It's interesting that the very person who could have helped their aloneness was God Almighty, and they ran from him. There's a reason, because they had just obeyed Satan. Anytime you obey the devil, obviously you're not going to be in great, great comeuppance with God Himself. It's just not going to be a close relationship. And that's exactly what happened to them. By by the way, so much for this thing of the relationship. Remember in the beginning when God created Adam and created him for Himself. And then he sees Adam, and unselfishly, God says, Though I made you for myself, I sense something about you. You're alone. I'm going to make you a helpmate. And so he makes Eve. So much for that, because when you get over to chapter 3 and verse number 11, when they have sinned, and God confronts him. It's interesting. In chapter 3, verse 11, he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Verse number 12, And the man said, The woman whom... Thou gave us to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. So much for this kind of camaraderie, right? This relationship, this special person that's been brought into your life, and and Eve is there, and Adam's looking at her and says, It's not my fault, it's her fault. And really it's your fault because you gave her to me. So much for this relationship, right? So much for this person who was going to be a help me and so much for this person who was going to eliminate this aloneness. That's an interesting thing because, you see, the only thing that seemed to matter after sin entered into the world was the defense of self. Defense of self. Adam says, it's not my fault. It's your fault because you gave her to me. I'd have probably been a happy camper without her, but you decided I was alone. You gave her to me, and now she tempted me. I sinned. It's your fault. Self. Self. And if that doesn't speak volumes in the text of the scripture I don't know what is now what happens is very simple the garden without God won't satisfy them God knows that and interesting without God they won't satisfy each other and so God says it's time to leave it's an interesting thing though they were made for each other they could not satisfy each other they had to quarrel to pick only because sin entered into the world sin did I remind you as I remind myself that this lays the groundwork for Romans chapter 8 and I point out four things where we enter into Romans 8. First off, God does not need us. You really need to get that deep down in your crawl. God does not need us. God did not need Adam and Eve. God does not need Rick Henry. And God does not need anybody in the New Life Baptist Church. God does not need, period. God does not need... That's part of why He is God. He's, he's very capable, self-sufficient, and He doesn't need anything or anybody. There's a second thing you ought to understand, is, and that is that God does not love us for what we can do for Him. God does not love us for what we can do for Him. Now, that's very clear because He could call 10,000 angels to do any of our particular jobs and more. He just does not love us for what we can do for Him. Thirdly, God does know that we tend to drift from Him occasionally. And are alone and sometimes actually hide from Him. Some of the empty pews in our church today are not because people are sick. They're because people are hiding. They're because people feel guilty. They're because people feel badly. And they are out of touch with and out of connection with Christian people and with the Lord Himself. And so the best thing to do is stay home, to hide. Don't go to church. And they think they can run from God. They should know by now that God is omnipresent. No matter where they go... He'll be there. And that's why at any moment, at any time, in any place, when they come to the realization of their failings and of their sin, they can stop right then and there and say, God, help me. And He will. And He will. There's a fourth thing. God has a time set. God has a time set. When for the believer, there'll be no more aloneness. And there'll be no more of separation from God at any degree or any dimension whatsoever. And that time will come when we're finally fully separated from this environment in which we live. And that's what this passage of Scripture of Romans chapter 8 is all about. Romans chapter 8 in verse number 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Well, it is to say the believers know this. Every believer in this room knows more than most scientists who do not know the Lord know. Because we know what's wrong with creation. We know why creation is groaning and travailing. We understand that. And and creation is. You know, um, Brother Tim was talking about earthquakes and and, um, things of that nature in the the Sunday school. um, Things of convulsions of the earth. I sometimes wonder if the convulsions of the earth, the hurricanes, the tornadoes, and all those things that get roused about on the earth is not the earth's way of expressing its groaning and travailing, that it's just sick of this whole mess. You see, don't you forget for a half a heartbeat that when Adam and Eve sinned, don't you forget that creation itself also was under the curse. Don't you forget that Adam was, by cause of his sin, the the Lord turned and said, and for your sake, Adam, the earth is cursed. When he turned to the serpent, when he was talking to the serpent concerning his deception that he pulled off on Eve's behalf, don't you forget that he told the serpent that he was cursed above all other animals and beasts. So there was a comparison. You're cursed worse, but you're still cursed as an earth creation. So every bird you hear, you think the music is pretty, you wait until the curse is removed from the bird's voice. You wait until the flowers that are under the curse bloom in a brilliance of liberation from the bondage of corruption. You wait until the fragrance that comes from a beautiful rose sinks through it your nose and nostrils and invades your lungs. And, and somehow right now it just smells sweet. You wait until then it almost as if it breathes life into you. You see, this whole earth is cursed, and that's what the passage of Scripture before it says, verse 22, For we know this, that this whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until this very moment. But verse 23 comes back, even though we know that. Verse 23, not only they, that is, we know something else. We not only know that creation is groaning and travailing in pain until now, but not only they, but we ourselves also Which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption, for the adoption to wit of the redemption of our body. What that passage of Scripture is saying that the believer not only knows that creation is under this strain of travail and groaning, but it is also a fact that we know we are under the same and that we're not what we were designed to be. There's something better for us. This is what we are because we live under a curse. But someday, when that curse is lifted, when the Bible passage here talks about it in verse number 19, where he talks about the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Right now, the Bible teaches us that we ought to tell the world we're Christians. Someday, the world will be told who we are, and it will be revealed to the world. Verse 19 talks about it is the manifestation of the sons of God. When it be laid out in public, here are all my people, these are all my folks, and the Lord will be the one who will be making that kind of declaration. By the way, we do this, as we groan and travail under this burden, uh, we reflect on two things. One of them is the consequences of sin. That's what causes us to travail and groan. The travail of of the consequences of sin. Remember back over in Romans chapter 5, and you should not forget this verse, it's a key. Paul's writing of the whole book of Romans, verse number 12 of chapter 5, is a key where he said, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Key verse of the whole Bible. It's a key verse to understand why babies die. Babies die because they are born sinners. Adults die because we are sinners. Death is a penalty of sin. Don't you ever forget that. It's not necessarily the sin that's committed on the spot. Babies don't sin, but babies are sinners, and they die because they're sinners. And it is a fact that men, women, boys, and girls can live a perfectly holy life. And you may be here this morning, and you say, Preacher, I am the holiest person you have ever met in my life. And you may be. And you can say, Pastor, I can tell you a fact. I have never sinned. And that may be true. I doubt it, but that may be true you'd still not go to heaven. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, the judgment, the curse of their sin fell upon the whole of the whole race and all of the offspring thereafter. And so, my friend, it does not matter, quote, what you do. It's what you are. You are a family member of Adam's race. And therefore, the curse of condemnation rests on you. Now, do you still sin? Do you sin in the spite or, in fact, in, in the process of being a born sinner? Sure you do. Sure we do. So there's double reasons why we're not what we ought to be. But the fact is we're born sinners. And because we're born sinners, someday we're going to die. Scripture's clear on that. And you can't change that. All the preaching that's been done from Adam until this morning has not changed the fact that people die. And they're going to keep dying. And you're going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. That's a given. God made the same statement. If he lied about that, you can't trust him on anything else he said. So the fact of the matter is, man is a sinner. Man is going to die. That's the consequences of sin. There's another one, and it's that which leads up to. Let me read it to you. I usually read this at uh, funeral services of folks, and this one is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Listen to this. In chapter number 12. Ecclesiastes chapter number 12 and verse number 1 says, Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. Now why would you do that? Why would you say, remember your creator while you're a young person? He says, while the evil days come not. You see, the process of this bondage of corruption that Paul talks about over in Romans chapter 8 is what you'll call the process of death and dying. Everybody in this room is in the process of dying. You're dying. You're dying while you're sitting here. Your brain cells are going away at such a rapid pace. It's possible for for the time we get through this service, you couldn't even remember your name. And don't you laugh at me when I forget things in the pulpit sometimes. Looking at you, you scare me to death. (laughs) And the fact of the matter is, our brain cells are dying. But that's not the only cells that are dying. You know what? The Bible. What Bible? I was going to say Bible. You know what the medical people say? That 95% of the dust in your house is you. That's the dying part of you that you're sweeping up and you're getting rid of. That's all you. you know? And that's what the little boy when he saw the dust on the bed. somebody's either coming or going. Let me tell you now. Dust in a house most of it is us. And the fact of the matter is that's not the only thing's dying off. It's a whole process. Chapter number 12 verse number 1 While the evil days come not nor the years draw nigh when thou shalt say I have no pleasure in them. You see, you reach a point in this life which is supposed to be Gaelic, exciting, and joyful, rejoicing, and so forth. You come to the reality, this world does, and i mostly of folks who are without Christ, come to a point where you just don't have the joy of it anymore. Just don't enjoy living. Verse number 2, while the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, tremble, And the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease, because they are few, that's your teeth. And those that look out of the windows, that's your eyes, be darkened. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up in the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low, when they shall be afraid of that which is high. And fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish. The almond tree is one of the few trees that has white blooms just about the color of white hair on people's heads. And the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail. I often talk about at this point in a funeral service, my mother used to fix green and beans. She's with the Lord now, probably fixing green beans there if they have them. But the thing that mother did was as she got older, she lost her taste buds. So mother kept adding salt. By the time I'd go back on vacation, and my family can attest to this, you have never eaten such salty green beans in all your life. I'm telling you, those things, they, they, were, they were a sodium attack. You'd take a bite of those things, and whole, your whole body would just scream for something to drink. Why? Because mother cut, she, she'd take a bite, and it was salty enough, add a little more, take a bite, and still not salty enough, and just about kill us with the salt. Why does that happen? Process of dying. Did you realize that every wrinkle on your face is to remind you that you're dying? Every ache in your body is a reminder you're dying. I'm telling you, God is gracious. You know why? He could dump all this on you one night. You could go to bed one night feeling wonderful, get up the next day and you'd have all these problems wrong with you, all of them at one time, and you'd say, boy, God's mean. What God does is He gradually reminds you, day in and day out. You're leaving here. This body is not designed for this world. This thing is just full of corruption, and you're in bondage to it. And then he goes on. Desire shall fail because man goeth to his long home and the mourners go about the streets. You see, God is gracious and kind to remind us that you're, you're not going to live here forever. This is only a temporary thing. And the fact of the matter is that, that our groaning and our travailing, much of it has to do with the consequences of sin. But that's not the only reason we groan and moan. The other one is because the constancy constancy I mean if you notice that if you uh, haven't I hope you will that if the evening news if you were to take the evening news Dan Rather who will soon be leaving retiring or Brokaw who's already gone or, uh, or uh, uh, Peter Jennings and, and if you were to take out of their script all the references of man's sins they'd have to run cartoons at 6 o'clock they wouldn't be anything what are you going to say? I, I, I mean, you, what is there to say if we don't talk about the constancy of sin? The newspapers would have to fold. Now, that's an idea. Yeah? They may have to close up shop. There's a reason for that because sin is an industry in America. The constancy of sin. And the fact of the matter is, it bothers us. At least it should. It should. And so there should be a travailing and a groaning, a moaning, as it were, about this whole thing. By the way, notice something else in these verses. In verse number 23, there's a connection between what we know and what we have. And you shouldn't miss that. You see, in verse number 23, and not only they, and what he's talking about is what we know in verse 22, because we know the whole creation groaneth, travaileth, and pain together until now, verse 23, and not only creation does that, but we ourselves also do the same thing because which we have the first fruits of the Spirit. You know why you hate sin at all? You know why you have any disdain for sin at all? It's not because you were such a wonderful baby and grew up to be such a lovely person. It's because you have the Holy Spirit of God inside of you. And that's God of very God. And God is holy. And God hates sin. And God vows that no sin will enter His presence. And so for that reason, because you have the Holy Spirit and you have the first fruits, which is the foretaste of that which is to come, you have that and that, my friend, is what's inside of you that recoils at everything that's on the evening news or in the newspaper, which is bad. The reason for the groaning and the travailing and pain is because of the consistency of sin, because of the constancy of sin, and it is all because we are made more aware of it because of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. He indwells us and he recoils from that. He does not like it. We should not like it and we should follow suit. We should, as you see it on a television, you ought to turn it off. You hear it on a radio, you ought to turn it off. We get so accustomed to hearing cursing that it is almost nothing to us to hear it anymore. May I tell you, the Bible is very clear. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. May I say, as surely as it ought not to come out of your mouth, it ought not to come into your ear. Now, am I talking about going around and wearing earplugs everywhere you work? I realize you work in an environment where it's not going to necessarily be pleasant. they are not going to whisper sweet nothings all day long. I know that. But what it ought to be that you'd make very clearly a stand that you don't appreciate hearing it. I've had to go to the barbershop of this city, and I've had a barbershop I went to before, and I had to declare myself there. And I've come to the barbershop where I go now and declared myself, and back, Judy cuts my hair most often now. I seldom go to the barbershop. Uh, it's much more convenient to sit home, and my wife cut it and talk to her than it is to go down there and be smoked up and, you know, have to change your clothes and shower and all that by the time you get home. But the point I made is this. I used to have to say in the barbershop, you excuse me, fellows, I'm a pastor than you like Baptist Church, and I really don't care to hear this. And the guy cutting my hair knew full well, if I hadn't heard enough of it, I'd probably just get up and walk out. And I wouldn't come back. So he'd say, hey, 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 shut down here. Shut down here. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind and I'm not trying to be an elitist. I'm just trying to say, I have just as much right to be in in an environment where there's not a bunch of that verbiage garbage as they do to speak it. And as a believer, you ought to speak up. And you ought to say, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I don't care to hear this. And I'm saying to you that that kind of thing comes from only one reason. Not because Rick Henry is a real holy guy. It's because Rick Henry is possessed with a really holy God. The Holy Spirit of God indwells me and He recoils at that which is ungodly and that which is contrary to God. I'm reminded of what this verse says in verse number 26 where it says that which we have, the first fruits of the Spirit. It's sort of a a foretaste. It's like when uh, Israel went into Canaan. And it sent the spies up there to look the thing over. And if you recall the song that we sing in our songbook, Paul Harvey, or not Paul Harvey, Bill Harvey wrote the song in our, our, our hymn book. It's called uh, I Want That Mountain. And one of the verses is where the grapes of Eskel grow. When they went up there, they found these grapes that had to be carried between two men. I mean, this land was just flowing with milk and honey and provisional foods and whatever of fruits and whatever have you. Uh, Speaking of fruits, uh, Judy was teaching the fruits of the Spirit on Wednesday night. And I said something to Andrew the other day about what he was studying Wednesday night. He said about fruit. And I said, what's your favorite of those you've talked about? He said, bananas. I told his teacher, you're going to have to work on his fruit thing. I got that down yet. Bananas, that's my favorite fruit. My point is they carry these things back between these staves. And the Bible very clearly says in Numbers chapter 13, to show them the fruit of the land. Why did they do that? Because the folks were skeptical about going. They said, hey, I'm not sure. There's some guys over there, big guys. I'm not so sure we want to go over there. And what they do? They brought back fruit and laid it down before them and said, there it is. And the Bible says, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And they were encouraged. They said, hey, I think we can go do it. That's worth going for. If it's got that kind of fruit and that kind of provision, I think we ought to go. Let me tell you something. That's the same ideal in verse number 23, the first fruits. This is to say, in essence, that the work of the Holy Spirit in your life ought to be an incentive for you to want to get home. You enjoy what He's doing in your life here? You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. This is just the first fruits. This is just a foretaste. This is just an example, and a small one at that. Of what God has in store for those that love Him when they get home to be with Him. And that's what He's here to do for you. Did you know that? His whole idea is to take you where you are and to change you into His likeness. And the fruit of the Spirit, that's what the production of the fruit is. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, 23. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and so forth. When Paul wrote that, the whole idea was that's the work of the Spirit. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is to make you like the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you get home to heaven, you're going to love the place. And if you love the good part of your life, if you could just take your life and separate it into two categories, the bad and the good, I'll guarantee you the good side of that would be the production of what the Holy Spirit does in your life. The bad is your pursuit of the fleshly, selfish kind of sinful things. This is what we're getting and we're given a foretaste of, and it's just going to get better from here. For the believer, this is the worst it's gonna be. Isn't that good? This is this is as bad as it can get. I mean, whatever happens to you that's bad, this is as bad as it can get in this world. When you leave here, it just gets better and better and better. And better, and no, no, it's not pie in the sky. Two points, and you don't need to forget these. First, we we do not just have a promise from God. By the way, though that would be sufficient. Did you know what? If God just said it one time, this is the way it is. That'd be enough. But we have more than that. This verse says we have foretaste, we have first fruits, we have proof that there is something over there that's better because this is just first fruits. This is what you just get to pick here in the flesh. But there's something bigger and something better. And by the way, as I know the scriptures, that's uh, that's eternal security. That's sort of a down payment. This is what you get now to guarantee that we got more coming later. And if you enjoy this, you're going to love that. And that's exactly what the Scripture set up for us in in the passage of Scripture in, in Ephesians, for instance, chapter number 1, verse number 13. Listen, Paul wrote, he said, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, after that ye, were be- that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. And again, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, Paul wrote, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. That passage of Scripture says and mentions two things. Holy Spirit is a seal and indeed is a work of redemption until the finished product is totally finished. And that's what this passage in Romans 8 is really saying. In Romans chapter 8, verse number 23, not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, here it is, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. And what's important for you to get on that is that in verse number 15 earlier on, we talked about adoption, but back up in chapter 8, verse 15, we were talking about adoption as it affected our spiritual position or our privilege. We talked about it there as an adult standing in the family of God, meaning every new convert in this room, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior last week, you have the same standing in the family of God as I do, who've been saved for many years. How'd that so? Because of adoption. That's what it is. The adoption of sons puts you at a status where no matter if you enter God's kingdom today, you have the same access to the Father, you have the same Holy Spirit, you have the same illumination of the Scriptures that any adult who had been saved for 40, 50, 60 years has. That's the good grace of God. And it's worked through a process called adoption. But adoption isn't finished. In verse number 23 in the text we just read, he's talking about adoption to wit, the redemption of the body. You see, your salvation won't be complete until this body, this body is complete. And that finishes the whole process of redemption. Body, soul, spirit. And what's happened is soul and spirit's already in good shape. Saved, sanctified, heading to heaven. But this body that contacts and intermingles with this world is not yet redeemed. These are unredeemed bodies. And that's what you have such a fit with. Your soul and spirit doesn't give me any problem. Spirit's willing, flesh is weak. And the whole idea that let the soul and spirit work very hard to do the right thing. Flesh says, mm mm, mm, mm. I want to have a good time. I'm here for the, for the fun time. This is, this, is, this is the funny, this is the playground. God said, no, this is a battlefield. And, and you need to bring your body in line with your soul and spirit. And it's programmed. The fact of the matter is, many, many folks get that mixed up and it causes all kinds of problems. Paul's speaking here of the emancipation, not so much from our bodies, but our bodies from the defects, the disadvantages of the earthly condition that affect the body. Suffering, pain, Satan, death, etc. And until Christ comes and the sons of God are manifested, as verse number 19 speaks about, we still have these unredeemed bodies and they continue to give us fits. By the way, I think it's an important... um, phrase that we use and you should use it and think of it there's the inner man and the outer man the inner man of course is already a new creation in Christ Ephesians chapter number 3 talks about that and says it thus: Ephesians 3 for this cause I bow my knees unto the father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man the inner man is the sanctified part of your nature. That nature that's a partaker of Christ's nature. That's the inner man. And that's already secure and safe and all is well there. It's this outer man that's a problem. And the best way to understand that is if you had a, a pecan. I happen to love pecans. And, and um, I'm still eating on, a, I don't know, two or three pound of box that my dear sister Paulette sent for my Christmas. Uh, and beautiful shell pecans out of Georgia. Man, wonderful. I'm getting hungry already lunch but here's the point they're in a shell and inside the shell is what you're going after so you have to crack the shell and take out the meat of the pecans somebody said it and said it i think correctly you see believers are like a holy seed inside of an unholy shell and someday we break away the shell and the seed goes home So what happens in this process, in this time, it's this outer shell that gives you all the trouble. And you ought to take heart in this. As I sat at my desk and was thinking on all the ramifications of this truth, this ought to really be an encouragement to you. It is to me. And that is simply this. As a believer, to realize that our stepping into sin does not have its origin in our inner man, which is our new and holy nature of Christ, or that which we're partakers of Christ with. But rather, when we sin, we do so because of the desires, the lusts of the flesh, which is centered in the outer man, these bodies, where all of our humanness is reflected. You see, that, that changes the perspective somewhat. That I'm not... Sinning with my new nature that which is the partaking of Christ that which Paul has written and Peter wrote about that's not what it is it's this that is connected to this world this uh, body that is yet unredeemed that is still in contact with this sinful world it's this body through which my sin comes you see this body is the missing link that sin has to have to operate it has to have a means of sin and it has to have an operational point and this body makes it possible And that's the reason why this body will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this body will be changed. It will be resurrected and it will be given a new body. And that's the reason you can't take this one to heaven. And that's why Paul talked about it in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 20. He spoke about it. Let me quickly close with the two verses we must cover. Verse 24. He said, with all that said, for we are saved by hope... But hope that is seen is not hope, for what is what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? It? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Two or three things. Honest Jesus says that what you need to understand is or we're not talking about salvation of the soul and spirit here. We're talking about the final part of salvation, and that is the redemption of the body. In verses 24 and 25, that's the subject about the issue of hope. We already have the other in the the bag, so to speak. Salvation of soul and spirit, done deal. What's not yet finished is is the redemption of these bodies, and we're waiting for that. And the the fact of the matter is, the believer's salvation is a done deal, it's a fact. He already received the first fruits, that's a guarantee or a pledge of that which is to come. The hope that Paul addresses here in this passage of Scripture is that of waiting for and the expectation of the final piece of the puzzle to be put in place, and that is for these bodies to be finally redeemed. That's what he's talking about. And that's why at this point it's not seen, it's not here, it's not realized yet, but it's on its way. There are three things. Quickly, let me leave with you and we'll close this service. First one is when you're talking about hope, the realm of hope, is in God Himself. Everything hinges on whether or not you can trust God. In Acts chapter 24, Paul, in the testimony that he gave before Felix, an interesting testimony in its whole, and its entirety, and worthy of a lot of concentration. But for now, let me take two verses. In Acts 24, and verse 14, he said, "...but this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets." And have hope toward God. That's my—that's the realm of hope for everybody in this room. It's, it's, it all hinges upon God Himself. Paul didn't only say that, but when he got before Agrippa a little later on, he stood before Agrippa in chapter 26, he relates the root of our hope. In chapter 26, in verse number 7, he said this, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God. Our, uh, the root of our hope is in the promises of God the realm of our hope is in God himself he has to make statements or declaration or promises but but the reality is the root of it is based on his promise what he said and then the responsibility of our hope is very simply this and this comes in the text of what we're here in chapter number 8 in chapter number 8 verse number 25 he says that we're to wait with patience you see we're we cannot do anything directly to speed up this process of liberating us from this bondage of corruption. We, we can't really do anything directly to change that. But we're not without responsibility. Our responsibility is to wait patiently. And that speaks to my own heart because, very frankly, you know, things of this world really disturb me. As a pastor of the church... Um, Things disturb me when I hear them, attacks on churches and attacks on pastors and individual believers and individual families that are living in the Lord and trying to serve the Lord and trying to do right. It disturbs me when our society turns on those people. And I must tell you, I get bent out of shape sometimes about that. This is written to me. It says, look, wait with patience. Wait with patience. God can be trusted. He's made a promise. And he'll take care of this. Wait patiently. But that's not all. In First John chapter 3 it says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we, he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. It says then we're to live lives of purity. Not only live lives of patience, but to live lives of purity. But there's a third thing. In Luke chapter number 12 and verse number 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. That passage teaches me to watch and work. Don't just sit around and, and, and just say, Well, God's coming someday and he's going to clean this whole mess up and I'm going to be liberated from this corruption, so I'm just going to sit on a log and wait. No, the ideal is to be serving while you're watching. Watching and waiting are not passive words in the New Testament. They're active words. They carry the ideal of doing something while the process is going on. In this passage of Scripture, it's still the same. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that word, as we've already talked about in the past, means a certainty of glory. The absolute assurance of glory. I mentioned and close with three things here. They're very important, so listen carefully. First off, if you're here this morning, you may be waiting until somebody comes to you or some pastor comes and tells you that God's changed his program. You don't have to be saved anymore. You can just be like you are, and someday you'll end up in heaven. Let me tell you, the Bible does not teach that. The Bible teaches very clearly that man must repent of his sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord to go to heaven. That's a given. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you're going to go to heaven, you must have Christ. Must have him as Savior. Must have believed on him. Reminded me as I read a few weeks ago of a, an incident in a, a case of a family who went to Florida. They were telling about their vacation, their trip, and especially the man and woman, they went into a mansion in West Florida. And I don't know what mansion it was, but evidently you pay to go into it and you get to walk through all these rooms and get to see how these people lived at a given time in the past. As they were going through this building, they they noticed there was this beautiful tapestry and these beautiful bedspreads and things were just elegant and absolutely expensive and whatever. They also noticed that on the tapestry of the curtains and also on the bed frame and on the bed coverings, there was this particular uh, little sign. And it said simply, wash hands immediately after touching. Wash hands. Hands immediately after touching well this man and his wife walked through this room and and they didn't touch anything and they didn't see anybody else touch anything so they walked all through the room and they were getting ready to leave and the woman was just curiosity couldn't stand anymore she went over to him she said what have you put on these things that that uh, is so bad and it's so harmful that you you don't want people touching he just laughed and he said ma'am it was just simply that the do not touch sign didn't work change the sign, change the message. Didn't change the thing in the room, but just change the message. Listen to me, listen to me good. If you're waiting for God to change the message, it ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. There is only one way to come, and that's by the way of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, well, I'm waiting. Maybe, maybe God made a mistake. I thought about that. A guy by the name of Lyndall Hart, he's a British military expert. He tells his students in the, the British Army this story. He does it with purpose. He says... There was a young man who spent one entire week going from store to store in New York changing a dollar bill into two half dollars and then the half dollars into four quarters, the quarters into dimes, ten dimes, and then the ten dimes into twenty nickels and the twenty nickels into a hundred pennies. After he had gotten the one hundred pennies, he began to reverse the process until he again had the dollar bill. After he'd gone through this strange procedure three times, Hart ventured to inquire what on the earth his purpose was. The little boy lifted his index finger and smiled craftily. And he said, one of these days, somewhere, somebody is going to make a mistake. And it's not going to be me. Now, let me tell you something. If you're waiting for God to make a mistake, it ain't going to happen. The plan of redemption is the most clever, ingenious plan could ever been devised to save the whole of the human race. Anybody wants to be saved. When Christ died on the cross to save mankind of their sin, this redemption story, the more I study the Scriptures, the more amazed I am how God worked and put it together to everybody to be saved. I stand in awe of the magnificence of God's redemptive plan. If you want to be saved, you can be saved. Don't wait till you think God somehow made a mistake and is going to change the program because it's not going to work that way. Or maybe you're like the folks in Brussels. There's a travel agency, I'm told, and it's in operation this very hour, in Brussels, that have absolutely struck gold, struck a bonanza in selling tickets to what they call mystery tours. They don't tell these people where they're going. They don't tell them anything about what they'll do when they get there. They don't explain any details whatsoever about this trip. But there you have a waiting list of people who want to go. And they have no clue where they're going. Let me tell you something. That reminds me of people who said, You yeah, look, I don't know if there's a heaven, I don't know if there's a hell, but I know I'm gonna die. I'll just leave it with that. How sad that is when God has already declared there's a way for you to know and to be sure. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And might I add, and certain of it. If you don't know Christ, there's no need of you wondering. There's no use of you waiting. There's no use of you hoping that God may maybe change the message or may make a mistake. And there's no use of you leaving it to fate, as they call it, of where you're going to end up. You'll have the choice. And very verily, you'll make the choice of where you'll be for all eternity. You'll make that choice. You will. You'll either receive Christ, believe on Christ, and go to heaven when you die, or you'll reject Him. And by the very decision you make, you address your soul for hell itself. So you really make the decision. And you can make it a day like this if you walk away without Christ as Savior. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word and thank You for all the truth that's bound within these pages. And thank you for the fact that you gave us your spirit that we might understand the truth that you've written in this book. And Father, what a blessing it is to open it, read it, to study it, to think on it, to meditate on it. And this day as we've come to this service to do just that, I pray that you've helped every person here to look over and think on their own relationship with you. I pray first of all for people in this room who may not know Christ as their Savior. Father, thank you for sending him into this world to die for our sins. And thank you that you did it because you loved us. You loved us. And you expressed it by sending a son, your only begotten son, to die in our stead. We want to thank you and praise you for that today and give you the glory for all that is accomplished through the work of the ministry both here and around the world. Because you're worthy of that praise. And, Father, we ask you to work in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls in this building, this very moment who may not know Christ and help them to understand the importance, the imperative need of making a decision for Christ before it's eternally too late. We have no assurances of tomorrow or even a next breath or a next heartbeat. Whatever we have, we have of your good grace. But, Father, I pray today you'll bring to our hearts the realization that we'll not live here forever. This is not the eternal bliss and the eternal home of people. This is for a temporary period, and then we pass away. I pray today, remind us of that and do it often. For believers, I pray today that you'll stir their spirits, help them to be encouraged by the fact that that though they've had a hard time and a rough week or a month or a year or maybe even a lifetime, help us to wait patiently until you bring about the liberation that we'll have from the bondage of corruption. It will come. We have your word on it. And the God that cannot lie has made a promise. He'll keep it. So help us to rest in that. Help us to not get frustrated with life and discouraged with the challenges that come with it. Help us to know we have a loving Heavenly Father who watches over us and after us and all things work together for the good of them that love Him. Remind us of that often. And for those who ought to come from baptism, who are saved by the grace of God and know it for sure, ought to come from baptism to identify with Christ, or those who ought to come and join fellowship with the New Life Baptist Church, or for those who ought to just come and pray, I pray you'll be the one to prompt their hearts through your spirit. And when we leave here today, may our hearts be clear and clean and absolutely right with you. Bless this invitation to your glory and to the good of the people here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? If you need a hymn book, turn to 282, just as I am. We'll sing the first stanza. If God has spoken to your heart, if you're here without Christ as Savior, or if you're a believer need to come for baptism, church membership, or just to pray, we invite you to come. The invitation is just that. It invites you to act upon that which the Holy Spirit has prompted you with truth. And so if God has pointed out a need, we want to help you meet it. And I would remind you, if you're here without Christ, that as you are, we once were. as we are you could be and that is by simply believing on the lord jesus christ as your savior as everybody else in this room who is saved has done so if god has spoken let me urge you to act upon it don't wait as we sing 282 verse 1 sing with us please just as i am without one if god has spoken to your heart would you come if god has spoken to your heart would you come God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you very much for your time and your attention. I appreciate it deeply. And I do appreciate your being with us this morning. And I would encourage you again to pray for folks who are not here. And if there's someone who usually sits with you on your row and they're not here, let me encourage you to make a phone call and let them know that you miss them. And you hope you will get back with us very, very soon. Tim, Jen, it's good to have you. I'm glad you stayed with us over the weekend. And Hartman's always here if you need us. We're glad for you to stop in again sometime. God bless you so much. Let's bow our head in prayer. Tim, would you lead us as we close, please? Heavenly Father, we do. Amen. Father, pray that you watch over each of us, give us safety in our travels, and our afternoon events, bring us back to your night safely. Those of us that will be here, Lord, have just prayed that your will be done into our lives. Christ, we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.